Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminally Disturbed. I am one of your hosts, Paul. And I am the other of your hosts, Jamie. The other of the host. <laughs> the hostess with the mostess. Oh, yes, that's it. <laughs> we are back with another episode. Uh, this is going to be your part two. Is that right? That is correct. Recorded for the second time. <laughs> because of my dumb ass. Yeah, I uh, I messed up. That's okay. I had it edited. I had it ready to go and shut the computer and did not save it. And when I woke up the next morning, it was gone. But that's okay, though, because that's given me time to perfect it even more. There you go. And, yeah, so it's going to be even better than this time, this time around. There you go. I say let's jump right into this. Let's just jump right into it. Trigger warning at the beginning of this, being that it's the second time that I've heard this story. <laughs> he already knows what's going to happen. I already know what's going to happen. So this is very gruesome. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about, obviously, you know, murder. Yeah. But there's also some sexual nature. Sexual assault. Yep. So we're going to just put that out there right now. Be warned yes. that we're going to be talking about that. Also be warned, there's going to be some graphic language from both of us. Yes. Talking about this piece of shit. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, with all those out of the way, let's get to it. Okay. I got my information for this from a book. It's titled A Monster of All Time by J.T. Hunter. Okay. And also my trusty newspapers.com. There you go, that newspapers.com. Oh, is, I love it. It's yeah. addictive. Well, I mean, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, just a quick recap. We are discussing Danny Rawling. Mm -hmm. He's a native of Shreveport, Louisiana. He's done a lot of traveling. I hate admitting that. A lot of robbering, jail time. He got out of jail. Came back to Shreveport, moved back in with his parents. Um, his dad is not a, a nice person. Oh, no. He is one of the worst. He actually committed a murder while he was in Shreveport of the Grissom family. The dad, uh, Tom, the daughter, Julie, and uh, Tom's grandson, Sean. So he didn't commit a murder. Well, he cr committed three murders. Yeah. Then him and his dad got into an argument. He shot his dad. But and he lived. His dad did live. Um, and now he's on the run. He's went from Kansas. Now he's in Florida. He's been a couple places in Florida, but now he has settled into Gainesville. He is actually camping in some woods that are across the street from a movie theater. All right. Um, he's already been scoping out the women. He's already been stopped by the cops once on a stolen bicycle that didn't have a light on it. And he was able to tell the cops, oh, well, I'm on my way to a party and I forgot how to get there. So the cops tell him how to get there. And he's free to go on and commit his atrocities. Wow. Yeah. So the cops just completely botched the protect and protect and serve. And they served this person. Right. Yeah. Okay. Which I guess um, he's very likable so it's probably why the cops believed his story that he was trying he was lost and he was trying to find a party did you ever find anything where someone said that maybe he was charming 
some did, some said he was, and then some said that he wasn't, said hmm. that he was weird. Hmm. So I guess it depended on who he was dealing with. Okay. How okay. it benefited him. Well, I'm just saying, I mean, he charmed the cop, obviously. Obviously, yeah. To, to not protect, but to serve. Right. So I was just wondering how charming really he was. I think probably depending on the circumstances. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, at that time that that cop pulled him over, he had a K-bar knife on him. Yeah, but what he would do is he would hide it in his sock, which I think those knives are pretty big. They are big. Yeah. So, I don't know how he did that, unless he strapped it to his leg. Probably. Yeah. Now, you know, when I'm wearing my boots, you know, I have high socks, obviously. And he may have been wearing high socks. I don't know. Hopefully, he wasn't wearing shorts with them high socks, looking like a pawpaw. Well, then you would be able to definitely see the knife. That, and you would definitely be able to be like, you're not heading to a college party. Oh, hell no. <laughs> you're heading for bed because it's past your bedtime. And if you're not heading for bed, then the the retirement home is this way, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're going the wrong way, bud. <laughs> you need to go to the other side of town. Did you escape yeah. from the retirement home? <laughs> okay. Okay. So we are in August of 1990 in Gainesville, Florida. We're actually at the University of Florida which at the time, the University of Florida was the largest college in the state with over 30,000 students. And I also looked for updated information today. Its enrollment is at 34,000. Okay. And in 2022, it was ranked the number 28 in U.S. News Best Colleges. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like I said, we're in Gainesville. And in 1990, the magazine named titled Money had voted Gainesville the 13th best place to live in the U.S. based off of its safe streets. I remember you saying that. Yeah. Like I said, I did some uh, trying to get some updated information. It didn't make the list in 2022. Really? Really. At all. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Changes. So, 17-year-old Christina Powell, we're going to call her Christy from okay. here right. on out, and 18-year-old Sonia Larson were students there they were both freshmen they hadn't been able to get a dorm room so they decided that they would share an apartment they had met during the summer they took some uh summer freshman classes immediately hit it off became good friends so the they rented a two-bedroom apartment at the williamsburg village apartments which was about four blocks from the college and the way these apartments are set up these are actually two-story apartments. Okay. So the bottom floor is like the living room, the kitchen, and I guess the dining room. And then the upstairs is where the bathroom and the bedrooms are. Right. Sonia was described as a happy-go-lucky kid. She was a National Honor Society scholar. She had actually taken advanced classes at Ely High School where she played for the varsity softball team and was... The manager of the girls' basketball team. All right. She attended First Baptist Church of Pompano Beach, where she sang in the church choir, played flute in the church orchestra, led Bible study, and helped at the church's daycare center. She planned to major in education because she eventually wanted to open her own daycare center. Okay. So she, she wanted to do things. She did. Christy graduated from Episcopal High School in Jacksonville, where she studied theology, worked on the school's literary magazine, and played softball and volleyball. 
She was described by friends as a fantastic, fun-loving young woman. She had actually planned on becoming an architect, and she was all excited about getting to start college because she was the youngest of seven siblings, mm-hmm. and she was the only one going to college. Wow. None of the others went. That's, that's something. I know. So I can see her excitement. Like, oh, yeah. I'm doing something that my other siblings didn't do. Mm-hmm. They were last seen around 11 p.m. on Thursday, August the 23rd. They had used a payphone to call home. Sonia called her parents, and then Christy called her parents just checking in. Hey, we're fine. We made it. They purchased items for their apartment at Walmart. They then went to dinner at Chili's and stopped at a convenience store on the way back to their apartment. Okay. So their plans for the next day is they were going to get up early, straighten up the apartment, and then they were going to start looking for part-time jobs. Okay. So that night, Sonia actually went to bed in her bed upstairs, and Christy went to sleep on the couch downstairs. Uh, right, right. Okay. <laughs> you was looking at me, and I was like... But you said that this was a two-bedroom, mm-hmm. and both of the bedrooms are upstairs. Uh-huh. Why wasn't she in her bed? Room? Bedroom? I'm wondering if it wasn't... If her bed wasn't there yet, and we, we'll find that out here in a little bit as to why it might not have been there. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Around 3 a.m., Danny arrived at the entrance to the apartments. He pulled a brown ski mask over his head and walked to the back of the apartments. He made his way to Christy and Sonia's apartment, and he tried to open the door, but the door wouldn't budge. Mm -hmm. So he decided to give it a try again, and that time the door opened. So I'm not sure why it wouldn't open the first time, but the second time he tries to do it, it opens. I can only imagine (coughs) that he probably tried to jimmy it with something. Um and it didn't he didn't he wasn't able to do it the first time. Yeah. And then he, he kinda you know <laughs> took a deep breath and said, I'll try it again. I'm gonna shoot my shot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I can only imagine that's probably what happened. Probably. So. And it's unfortunate. I wish the damn door would not have opened for him. But right. yeah. Yeah. So he steps into the apartment. There's no lights on because obviously the girls are asleep. So or, excuse me, the young women are asleep. Mm-hmm. He makes his way into the living room where he sees Christy on the couch. And he actually stands there and watches her sleep for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But he didn't wake her up at that moment. He went ahead and went upstairs, found Sonia in her room. And he gets his knife ready and he has tape with him. So he gets a, a piece of tape ready. Mm-hmm. And as he wakes Sonia up, he puts the tape over her mouth and immediately stabs her. Wow. So she doesn't really have a chance to cry out because she's got tape over her mouth. And it was actually duct tape. Well, at least it wasn't Gorilla tape. Oh, that's true. Obviously, she tries to defend herself, but she didn't stand a chance because he's steadily stabbing her. She soon succumbed to her injuries. And he proceeds to walk back downstairs because, remember, Christy is still asleep on the couch. Yeah. And she didn't hear any of this because of the duct tape. Right. So, he covered her mouth with his hand and woke her up. He showed her the knife and told her that she better stay quiet. And she nodded. Oh, sure. Silently. She's terrified. Oh, well, yeah. He pulled her down onto the carpet where he raped her until he ejaculated. He then rolled her over onto her stomach 
and he stabbed her in her back over and over until she stopped moving. So when he's done with that, he's like, I'm going to go back up to Sonia upstairs, even though she's dead. You know, I still want to, I guess, do what I need to do or whatever. I don't know how to work. Now he's dabbling in necrophilia. Yes. So he goes back upstairs to her body and he pulls her body to the edge of the bed and he took off her underwear, spreads her legs, and then he looks at her. I mean, obviously she's covered in blood and he's like, I I can't do it. And I'm like, you can't do it because you're, you're turned off because she's covered in blood. You're not turned off because this is a dead body. I mean, she's not going to fight though. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, it makes no sense. This is a dead body. I mean, you should be grossed out by that. Yeah. So, he was, like I said, he was repelled. So, he went ahead and removed the tape from her mouth. And he goes back downstairs to Christy's body. And he had his way with her corpse. When he got done, he found some dish soap in their kitchen. And he washed out Christy's vagina, trying to get rid of any evidence. This, this, this fucker is... He's gross. Gross. Yes. So, Christy's mother, Patricia, was expecting Christy to call home that Friday. Sure. And Christy didn't call home, so her mama's getting concerned. On Saturday, Christy's uh, sister and brother-in-law actually showed up at the apartment because they were bringing Christy some furniture. And I'm thinking this might be where the bed might have been. I got you. So, they waited in the parking lot of the apartments from 5 p.m. till 9 p.m. And obviously, Christy never showed up. So, they tell their her mom hey she didn't show up so her mom was like this isn't right so they the next morning sunday morning christy's parents get up and they head to gainesville mm-hmm. at three forty-five p.m on that sunday gainesville police officer ray barber responded to christy and sonia's apartment for a welfare check mm-hmm. when he arrived he met up with the building's maintenance man they went up there locked n- loudly on the door no one responded, so they went around to the back door. The maintenance man had a master key, but the door still would not open. So they actually had to take the door off of the frame to actually get into the apartment. I'm surprised that they were able to do that from the outside. Yeah. Because the hinges, the hinge piece is usually on the inside of the place you can't really get to. The only thing you'd be able to do is cut into the frame and around the door. And just pull the whole thing out. Well, I'm wondering if maybe that's what they did. It said they dislodged the door. So I took it as mm. they took it off the hinges. No, it sounds like dislodging it. They they cut into the frame of the okay. door. And, you know, because you can't get to the hinges from the outside. Okay. See, I didn't know that because I'm in construction, but I just work in the office. So, <laughs> uh, uh, Yeah, the, the hinges are on the inside. And so... Uh, you cannot get to them. Gotcha. The only way that they'd be able to do that is to literally knock a hole in the wall beside the door and then cut the frame out of the wall. Gotcha. So Okay. So when Officer Barber walked in, obviously he noticed a smell of death as soon as he entered. He drew his gun immediately because he doesn't know if the suspect is still in the apartment. He found Sonia laying on her bed. She was already in the initial stage of decomposition. Blood was everywhere her autopsy would show that she had suffered 11 stab wounds to her right arm indicating where she had tried to defend herself she had five stab wounds tightly clustered around her right nipple and two stab wounds to the left side of her chest Mm. 
The wounds to her right breast included punctures of her right lung and the right atrium of her heart. Her left lung suffered a deep stab wound and a two-inch slice of her spleen was incompletely sliced away. Ugh. So I guess it was kind of just hanging there on yeah. the inside. Wow. Downstairs, he discovered the nude body of Christy. She's laying on her back on the living room floor next to the couch. Both of her arms were extended above her head, and both of her legs were spread wide apart, bent at the knees, fully exposing her pubic area. A nearly empty bottle of Dawn dish soap had been left between her knees on top of a towel. There was soap still coating her vaginal area. Mm. Her autopsy would show that she had five stab wounds through her back, with at least two of those puncturing her right lung. Wow. Her probable cause of death was multiple stab wounds to her back with the perforation of her aorta left lung and heart it was estimated that she remained alive for one to two minutes after the fatal stabbing Jeez. could you i don't want to say could you imagine because i no. don't want to but that's horrible no that is it's horrible just torture yes it is and then you know he whatever he did after yeah. You know, she remained alive for a couple of minutes or whatever. I mean, just having to live uh -huh. that. Ugh. Just despicable. Yep. Sonia and Christy's neighbors reported hearing their shower running around 6.30 a.m. that morning. And also, the George Michael song, Faith, was playing loudly around 10 a.m. that morning. So, the medical examiner actually placed her time of death, obviously, before those times. So, he was still there? He was still there. At 10 a.m. Using their shower and playing music loudly. He was in no hurry to leave. So, he got there at 3 a.m., you mm -hmm. said? And, he, and they heard the music at 10 a.m. Yes. Seven hours later. Yes. Mm -hmm. He hung around. He did. The next night, which was Saturday, August 25th, Danny returned to a location that he had targeted several days before. This was the house of Krista Hoyt. Krista had graduated with honors from Newberry High School the year before. She was on the student council and in the band. And she had moved out of her family's home shortly after she turned 18. So mm -hmm. she's, she's still 18. Mm-hmm. She was attending Santa Fe Community College on a scholarship as a chemistry honors student. Wow. She was also working as a clerk in the records bureau of the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. Because, that's a, a lot to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because she wanted to combine her interest in chemistry and police work to eventually work at the FBI crime lab. That is awesome. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yes. So he gets to her house and he pushed down a weakened part of the chain link fence that's by her backyard. And he crept up to her door. He peered inside and he sees that she's not home because she's out actually playing racquetball with a friend. Okay. So there's a sliding door and he pried it open and stepped inside. So he's like, I'm fixing to hide and wait on her. So he sees an alcove by the front door, but there's a bookcase kind of blocking to where he could fully hide in it. So he actually rearranges her furniture by pulling the bookcase to her bedroom. At any minute, she can walk in. Any minute, she could walk in. Brazen. But, 
And also, how are you going to come in this house and just start rearranging the furniture? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you own this place or something. Like, you finna move in. Right? Okay. So You make it more convenient for me. Yeah. Bullshit. Asshole. So, he moved the bookcase to the bedroom, gets in his hiding spot. At about 10.15, he sees her coming up the sidewalk. She gets in the house, shuts the door behind her, locks it, even though the danger is in your house. Right. Sets her keys in her racquetball gear on the nearby table. And as she's turning, she's noticing something's not right because that bookcase has moved. Somebody moved my fucking furniture around. Right. So at the same time as she's noticing this, I mean, he jumps out of the dark and grabs her tightly around her neck. He threw her to the ground, taped her hands behind her back, and taped her mouth. He then repeatedly raped her. Mm. When he was done, he turned her over and stabbed her once in the back. And he actually sat there and watched while she died. And then he plunged the knife into her stomach and sliced upward. He was eviscerating her with little effort. Wow. He then grabbed her breast and cut off each of her nipples and placed them on top of her protruding intestines. Later, and it says later, I don't think he actually left the house. I think he, maybe he just might have went into another room and doing God knows what. Mm. But later he comes back in there to look at what he done, and he's, like, not happy with what he's done, thinking, I need to do more. So he cut off her head, and he propped it up on the bookshelf that he had put in her bedroom and made it to where it was like her head was looking at her body. This dude is sick. Sick. So on Monday, August 27th, Krista was actually supposed to show up for a midnight shift at her job, place of employment. Her supervisor, Nancy, became concerned when she didn't show up because Krista was always there. And right. if she had something she had to do, she let them know way in advance. So yeah. Nancy's like, this, something's not right. So, Nancy contacted Deputy Keith O'Hara and asked him to go over to Krista's house and check out what was going on. So, Deputy Keith O'Hara received the call. He immediately went to Krista's, I keep calling it a house, but it's actually an apartment. Yeah. And her apartment was less than three miles away from Krista, Christie's and Sonia's apartment. Okay. He gets there. He announces himself as a police officer. Obviously, nobody answers the door. Right. So, he found the property manager, and the manager left, led O'Hara through an unlocked wooden gate that was situated adjacent to Krista's apartment. So, when they go through that wooden gate, the property manager is like, that's funny. This is supposed to be locked. Mm. So, obviously, it's like, oh, kind of some alarm sign. What's the word? Not alarm signs. Some warning signs. Warnings. Yeah. So, they walked down a narrow corridor to a chain-link fence that was separating the building from the thick woods that are behind it. Mm -hmm. And the manager's like, uh, that section of fence right there is sagging and it's not supposed to be. So, O'Hara's like, yeah, something's not right here. So, he told the property manager, you just stay right here. Right. I'm going to walk up to the sliding glass door. Don't know what the hell's going on here. Right. So he gets up there, and there's actually curtains in front of the sliding glass door, but there's still, like, a little space mm -hmm. at the bottom to where he could see. So he gets down on his stomach and shines his light in there. And what he sees is Krista's body sitting 
forward at the edge of the bed. Her hands were drooped beside her thighs, which were spread wide apart. Her feet were in a pool of blood on the floor, and there were still drops of blood that were falling to the floor from where her head had been cut off. Oh, my God. I mean, this is horrific to even visualize, but for this guy to see it right up close, and it's just, I can only imagine what was running through his head at this time. And I'm sure he probably needed Treatment. counseling. Yeah, yes, for sure. So he quickly called for backup. Yeah. Her autopsy would show that her probable cause of death was a stab wound that had penetrated her back and extended seven inches in length, piercing her aorta, lung, and heart. Mm. So based on the similarities between the two crime scenes, the knife wounds, the removal of nipples, missing flesh, the investigators figured that it's probably the same person that killed all three of them. Wow. Wow. So, just before noon, later on that day, the same day, Danny, he, he was shirtless, but he was wearing a ski mask, stormed into the First Union Bank, which was just down the street from Krista's apartment. He had a blue metallic handgun, which I would think that's kind of girly. I mean, I don't know. Well, I'm wondering if they meant to say that it was blued. The steel was blued, maybe. I don't know. Because to, ha- to be carrying around a blue, metallic blue handgun, that's mm-hmm. that's a little gaudy, I guess. I think that's what I meant. Not girly, but gaudy. Yeah. Bougie. It's bougie. Yeah. yeah. There you go. I, I don't know. I've, I don't. I know that there's, you know, you can do a lot of things to your weapons, you know, guns and things like that. Like, you can have them dipped. Right. In, in, and I guess the reason why I'm pointing this out, because he's going to rob a bank, and I'm sure the tellers are probably like, you know, if he'd have walked in with just a regular metal gun, I mean, obviously that probably wouldn't stand out as much, but right. this would be like, oh, that was a metallic blue gun he had. I just don't, I don't see the point in, in having a metallic blue gun. But anyway, I'm, of course, I'm not this guy either. Right. So. It's probably not. It was probably stolen. It never says, but I'm sure it was stolen. Yeah. He jumped over the counter and smashed the security cameras with the gun, and he ordered the tellers to fill up the duffel bag he had with money. And he tells them there better not be any dye packs in there. Yeah, okay, buddy. Yeah. He wasn't even 50 yards from the bank when the red dye packs exploded. Well, I mean, yeah, their proximity thing. Right. You know, so... Wow. Okay, buddy. The police started receiving numerous reports about suspicious figures spotted in the vicinity of the crime scenes. And so these murders start bringing up old memories for people in Mm. Florida because they revived the memories of young co-eds that had been attacked by Ted Bundy. Oh, wow. At Florida State University in 1978. I can only imagine what's running through this, this town's mind. Like, probably like, here we go again. Here we go again, yep. And what's crazy is, like I said, this was happening in 1990. Bundy had only recently been executed in the state of Florida on January 24th of 1989. So this is right before. Yeah. Wow. Like, recent. On Tuesday, August the 28th, Manuel Manny, we'll call him Manny from here on out, Tabota and Tracy Paul's were both 23 and were both students at the University of Florida. 
They had been friends since high school, so they were sharing an apartment. Manny was six foot two and weighed 200 pounds. He had played the offensive guard at American High School, where he was president of the drama club, and he had the lead role in their production of Grease. Wow, okay. Yeah. Tracy had been a cheerleader, softball player, newspaper editor, senior class president, and homecoming queen. Wow. And I've seen pictures of her. She was gorgeous. Okay. So, Tracy's thought is, yeah, I could be sharing an apartment with another female, but even before all this started happening, she was like, you know, I just feel safer with the male, mm. and her and Manny are good friends, yeah. so it was just... Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. We'll just room together. Sure. Manny was be- planning to become an architect and had actually been accepted into architectural school. Nice. Tracy intended to go to law school after finishing pre-law studies at the University of Florida. Yeah. Okay. So, on Sunday night, August the 26th, Tracy actually called home and spoke with her parents. Okay. And her mother had actually told her about the bodies that were being found. Her her father told her, you need to be careful. Please Mm. make sure you stay close to Manny. Right. Around midnight that night, her friend Lisa called her, and they talked for about 45 minutes. About 1.45 a.m., Manny arrived home because he was working as a bartender at Bennigan's. All right. So, they both go to bed. At 3 a.m., Danny walked to the rear sliding glass door of Manny and Tracy's apartment and used a screwdriver to pop open the lock. He was carrying a pistol and his K-bar knife. He stepped into the apartment, made his way down the hall to Manny's bedroom. He stood over Manny, watched him sleep for a little bit, and then he plunged the knife into Manny's chest. And when he did this, he tried to guide the blade upward to pierce Manny's heart. Mm Mm-hmm. Manny awoke, and obviously he was kind of still half asleep, and he was like yelling, I've been shot, because he was confused about what was going on. Wow. And as he's yelling, I've been shot, Danny is is steadily stabbing him, Manny, over and over again. Manny is trying to fend Danny off, but it's not really working, because, I mean, with each stab, he's losing more and more blood and becoming more and more hurt. I mean, waking up to that mm-hmm. and and he said you know he started yelling i'm shot first of all what were you dreaming of but um to, to wake up and immediately say that right but the other thing is is waking up to someone repeatedly stabbing you right i'm assuming that he fought he did because this was a big dude mm-hmm. six, you said he was six two two hundred mm-hmm. pounds Offensive guard for mm-hmm. uh, high school. Mm-hmm. But Danny was a big dude, too. He was a big dude, yeah. And he caught Manny, obviously, off guard. Now, I got to ask. Danny may not have ever said that he did this, but did he plan? Did he seek these people or find them and then stalk them? And, you know, did he plan this? Or did he know who was there? Yes, because he had actually... Been outside, I think at these apartments, he just kind of walked around to see whose windows he could, like, look into. Uh-huh. So while Tracy was on the phone with her parents and her friends, Lisa, he was actually watching her outside her window. Because mm. she had, I guess, her curtains or her blinds open. So he see, was watching is, her. That is creepy as all get out. Yeah. That she was unsuspecting. Yep. On the phone with her parents mm-hmm. and being watched. And plotted against 
basically. And what was even crazier is she was watching America's Most Wanted. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, the irony. That's horrible. I know, right? Yeah. So did he know Manny was there? Yes, because he stayed outside watching. And even when Manny got home, he saw Manny. So he knew going into this apartment that 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 big dude was in there. Right. And obviously he knew he would have to take him out first. That's where I was going. Right. That's exactly where mm-hmm. I was going is he planned this to a point where he knew Who he had this to take big dude out. was in there and he had to take him out first. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So as Manny lay there dying, his last word was Tracy. <sighs> so Danny laid... Danny didn't lay there. He he stood there and watched Manny die. And then he stepped out into the hallway and he saw Tracy standing at the entrance to her bedroom down the hall. So she sees him coming toward her and she slams the door and locks it. It didn't keep him out. He was able to break down her door. Right. So when he makes it in there, she looks at him and she says, you're him, aren't you? And Danny's like, no. And she's like, yes, you are. So, Danny pushed Tracy onto her stomach. He bound her wrist with duct tape, and then he turned her back over. And she tells him, you're going to get caught. (laughs) And he tells her, maybe, but not tonight. And he raped her. And when he finished, he turned her onto her stomach. And he pressed her face into her pillow and then started stabbing her in her back until she lay still. Jeez. So, the next morning, Lisa, her friend Lisa, who she had talked to that night had repeatedly tried to call her and Tracy was not returning her calls. So Lisa called their mutual friend, Tommy Carroll and said, Hey, can you go over there and check and see what's going on? So he heads over there and he knocks on the door, didn't get a response. So he found the maintenance man for the apartments and the maintenance man had a master key. So the maintenance man opened the door and he sees Tracy's body that's laying in the hallway between the two bedrooms. And there was also a dark colored bag beside her head. So I guess the maintenance man at that moment is like, oh shit. So he slammed the door immediately and locked it. And I guess maybe to keep Tommy from seeing what he just saw. And the maintenance man goes and calls the cops. Well, the cops are there within five minutes. Mm -hmm. So they go up there to the door. The door's unlocked. So they open the door and the bag that was in there by Tracy's head is gone. Son of a bitch. Yes. Oh, my God. So, he was still there. He was still there. Because they were saying, you know, this crime scene was different because neither of the bodies were mutilated. But then they got to thinking about it. Well, the door was, the maintenance man locked the door. But when the cops got there, the door was unlocked. Then the bag that was there wasn't there. So, they had interrupted him, I guess, probably right before he started mutilating Jeez. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. To know that it, they were that close. I know. To catching. There would have been a probably a fight, you know. He had a gun. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he wouldn't have gone peacefully. No. Wow. But still, I mean, he was there. He was there. Mm. The autopsy of Tracy showed that she had died from blood loss finding multiple stab wounds on her back with the penetration of her left lung. And she actually had a pulmonary aspiration of blood. So basically, she was breathing. Drowned on her own blood. Yeah. Yeah. 
Based on her injuries, it would have taken between two and five minutes for her to go into irreversible shock and die. So she basically suffered between two and five minutes. She also had a light coating of liquid soap present on her pubic and perianal region. So he tried to clean her up too. Mm. Manny's autopsy showed a total of 31 cuts and stabs on his face, neck, chest, abdomen, arms, stomach, and right leg. Defense wounds on his arms, basically, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A major stab wound on the left side of his chest had an internal wound track about six inches long, going from the front to the back, from the left to the right, and slightly downward, passing through the left chest wall, upper lobe of left lung, his ascending aorta, superior vena cava, and then it terminated in the lower lobe of the right lung. So this was a... He... he Pushed it in and then maybe jiggled it around. Yeah, like moved it and yeah. while it was still in, so he made a very large cut. Yeah, like I, I, I guess the only thing you could kind of compare that to is like if you and this is crude, but like you're gutting a deer. Yeah, I guess. Mm-hmm. In addition to that major wound, Manny suffered multiple punctures of his right and left lungs. And 13 of the stab wounds were to his hands from trying to fend off his attacker. The three crime scenes were remarkably clean. However, Danny did fail to destroy all traces of semen. So even with him doing the soap and stuff, he didn't destroy all traces. We're not talking about a doctor here. (laughs) True. So the news of the third murder spreads quickly across campus. Oh, I'm sure. And... A bunch of the students were like, fuck this, I'm going home. So there was a mass exodus of students. And the students that did stay, along with the Gainesville residents, bought out the city's supply of deadbolts, stun guns, mace, shotguns, rifles, and baseball bats. They were prepared. (laughs) They was fixing to take somebody down. Yeah. I probably would have done the same thing. Right? They did form a task force to find the killer. It eventually would include the efforts of 180 law enforcement officers. And these officers came from the Alachua County Sheriff's Office, the Gainesville Police Department, the Student Homicide Task Force, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and investigators from the State Attorney's Office. Mm. FBI profilers from Quantico also came in to provide a personality profile. At the end of all this, the total cost was approximately $6 million, and it would be the largest of its kind in Florida's history. So around 1 a.m. on August 30th, Officer Tim Merrill is patrolling, and he noticed that there's two men walking down the street, one white man, one black man. They walked into a wooded area that was about a half mile from the First Union Bank. So Officer Merrill's like, hmm, this don't look right. Mm -hmm. He calls for backup. He goes up to him and he tells him, orders both of them to stop. Well, the black male actually stopped. The white male took off running. So Merrill actually chased after the white male, but he ended up losing sight of him. So he goes back to the black male and um, he, he tells him that his name was Tony and said that the white male, his name was Mike. They had actually met at Taco Bell and Mike had asked Tony for a ride, and he told him, he's like, I'll give you 
but I need you to take me back to this wooden area, this wooded area where I'm camping at, and I got money there, and that's where I'll give you your $10. Okay. So that's what they were doing. Tony gave him a ride, and Tony wanted his $10. Okay. So the police actually found the campsite. There was a large amount of dye-stained money. Holy shit. <laughs> that was hidden under a raincoat and also in a tote bag inside the tent. There was also a blue steel Taurus 9mm handgun. Blue steel. Mm-hmm. I think that's blued. Okay. Well, I think that's what that is. The earlier description said blue metallic, so maybe... Well, yeah, it's probably a metallic. I gotcha. You know, but it's... it's they take steel and they blew it with uh -huh. heat, uh -huh. and uh, it gives it a different look. I got gotcha. you. I guess, yeah. There was also jewelry, a brown ski mask, gloves, and a small cassette player that had a tape in it. What was on the tape? You remember he had, um, when he first stole the tape player, he had started recording a tape to his parents? That's right. That's right. On the afternoon of August the 30th, um, an engineering student for the University of Florida named Christopher returned home to find that his front door was unlocked and leaning open. Don't go in there. He went in there. Damn it. Danny had broken in and had eaten cookies, Quaker instant oatmeal, and had actually watched a Playboy videotape. Sup, motherfucker? You gonna leave some money for them cookies? This fool left the TV on left his dirty dishes in the damn sink, and then stole the boy's 1978 Burke Regal. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Asshole. Yeah. I mean. You gonna break in my house, eat up my food, leave me the dirty dishes, watch my Playboy tapes, leave my damn TV on. Did he rewind the VCR tape? I, he didn't say. But he was still using up the electricity. He was. And then stole the damn car asshole so danny left gainesville went to tampa into stolen burke around 7 45 p.m on september the 2nd wearing a ski mask he walked into a save and pack grocery store he tossed paper bags at the cashiers and ordered them to fill the bags with money <laughs> just toss the paper bags just at toss it. the paper bags here put hey. me some damn money in yeah. here throw it at her be like fill this up well, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's deputies were actually eating nearby. So they were able to get there quick enough in time to intercept him as he ran out of the saving pack because he had about $3,000 in them paper bags. And coupons. Oh, I bet they did give I him some coupons. bet they gave him them coupons. So he jumps into the Burke. As he started the engine, two deputies actually stood in front of the car with their guns drawn. So he throws the Burke in reverse and actually gets it wedged into an alley. Stupid. So as it's wedged, a female police officer comes up from behind and she's pointing her gun at his head. And he actually turns and tells her, lady, I don't want to shoot you. So she's kind of like, oh. So she kind of goes around the corner where he can't shoot her. So she's not really behind him anymore. He actually, Why didn't she just fire? I don't know. I'm not a police officer, so I don't know all the, like, all the rules. I, I don't know. So, he did get the car unwedged and guns it, and he's driving, like, toward the police officers that are in front of the car. So, they actually start firing at him. They fired a total of 19 shots, with 17 of those shots actually hitting the car. 
and zero of those shots hitting Danny. Oh, my God. <laughs> yep. So, he abandoned that car and actually fled and through some woods. Mm. He came upon a neighborhood, broke into a house. Luckily, nobody was home, but he did use their phone to make some long-distance phone calls. To, asshole. I know. He called his mama, and he called his ex-girlfriend, Bunny, that he had while he was here in Shreveport. He left that house. He broke into another house that was nearby. Those owners of that house wasn't home. He kind of went through their stuff. He didn't find anything worth stealing other than the 10-speed from the back porch when he left. Mm -hmm. So... He goes and he finds another house that's under construction, and that's where he actually slept at that night. The fact that this man actually got to somewhere where he could sleep for the night uh -huh. is baffling to me. I know. So the next morning, right before dawn, he broke into Ray and Patricia Rio's apartment. He was able to pry open the glass door with a screwdriver. So while he's there, they're still sleeping. Mm -hmm. They didn't know anybody was there. So while he's there, he ate a banana, stole two Timex watches, and then took the keys to their 1983 Silver Ford Mustang. What a dickhead. I know. Around 1 p.m. that day, he strolled into a Winn-Dixie in Ocala. He showed the closest cashier a 38 revolver, and he tells her, this is a robbery. Well, duh, you just showed her a, a gun. What else what would else she think? What else are you going to do, do with that gun? She gives him over $2,000, and he tells her, bless you, and ran out. Did she sneeze? No, I think he was saying, bless you for giving me this money. Oh, my God. Bless you for feeling so sorry for me that you just gave me this money. Bless you for being so generous and not getting shot. Yeah. My God. Before he runs out the store, an employee had already called 911. And it was also training day for the police department, so there was double the number of patrol units on the streets. I'm thinking of the movie Police Academy. Yes. Yeah. So, he actually led the police on a high-speed chase. He crashed into a car that was sitting at a spotlight. Stupid. Dummy. He bailed from the car, ran into an office building, and runs down the hallway of the office building and then out the back door of that office building. Now, you know them people in the office building were like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Like well, a movie. I know. As he makes it out the back door, he's surrounded by the police. And he tells them, boy, you guys are good. You don't have the right to say that the police are just that good. Maybe you're just that dumb. You're just that dumb. I mean. Whatever. Or they could be that good. We don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. Okay. They noticed that he's chatty, and he also surprised them by freely admitting that, yeah, I did that robbery. Okay, what else did you do <laughs> now that you're talking? So, after officials learned of his past escapes, he is treated as an ex extreme escape risk in the Marion County Jail. So, what they did, he was required to be moved to a different cell every day, and the guards would actually check in on him every 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Well, he's there and he's like, fuck this shit. I'm trying to break out. So he grabs his toilet and tries to throw it through his window of a cell. But the window was plexiglass. So the toilet just kind of bounced off. He thought that was going to work. He thought that was going to work. He didn't have bars on the windows? I guess not. That's kind of crazy. 
At the beginning of 1991, Shreveport detectives contacted the Gainesville Task Force with information regarding their suspect in the Grissom family homicide. Because, you know, it's still unsolved right. at this point. Right. A Shreveport resident named Cindy Dobbin, who had actually met Danny 15 years earlier, had caught in a tip to the police department that put him on their radar. So when they followed up on that tip, they start seeing the similarities between the Grissom murders and the murders that happened in Gainesville. Right. So they, like I said, they contacted Gainesville. And so Gainesville's actually starting to, like, kind of look at him, too. And, and they know that he's in jail for that robbery. Mm -hmm. So on the night of January 22nd, Marion County jail officials contacted the task force and said, hey, our prison dentist here had to pull a tooth from Danny because he had a tooth problem. So, you know, that gauze that they used to kind of pack his mouth with, they actually saved some of it and they saved the tooth that still has blood on it and were actually sending it to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Laboratory for some DNA testing. That's good on them. I know. So two days later, an anonymous source actually identified 36-year-old Danny Harold Rawling as the task force primary target. Wow. His father said, oh, we're heartbroken over this, whatever. Nothing you say has any weight to it. Exactly. His father said he may be disturbed, but he ain't guilty of that. Bullshit, dude. <laughs> right? His mama said, we're just sick over this. Now, I can see where she would be like... I definitely can yeah. see hers, but not the as dad, bad. He don't dude, give a shit. You made him like that. I'm sorry, but that's just you contributed to that. Right. Several weeks later, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement agents appeared at Danny's jail cell with a search warrant to obtain more DNA and other bodily evidence samples from him. They took head hair, pubic hair. And blood samples to compare it to the DNA from the Gainesville crime scenes. So on March the 12th, the forensic laboratory finished its analysis. And a DNA profile that was obtained from the semen recovered from vaginal swabs of Krista Hoyt matched Danny's DNA so closely that there was only a 1 in 3 million chance that it could belong to someone else. I'd say that that was a match. You know, Dana don't lie. <laughs> On May the 21st, the Shreveport Police Department announced that its detectives were investigating Danny in connection with the Grissom family murders. On September the 18th, Danny received a life sentence plus 30 years as a habitual offender for the September 1990 robbery of the Ocala Winn-Dixie. Okay. He showed little reaction to the sentence, but he did state, God bless the people of Florida and Lord help me. A month later, he was back in court in Hillsborough County. Judge Harry Lee Coe, sounds like a country singer, mm -hmm. sentenced Danny to three consecutive life sentences, one for each cashier that he robbed at the saving pack, plus 170 years for the string of robberies and the house burglaries that he mm -hmm. committed yep. while in Tampa. In imposing the sentence, Coe, Judge Coe, sorry, stressed that he intended for it to ensure that Rawling would not be given the opportunity to see the light of day again. Good. Right. But that's not even for the murders yet. That's not even for the murders yet. That's just for robbering. 
<laughs> robbering. Robbering and making long distance phone calls and being a dick. Being a douche. In response to that sentence, Danny tells the court, I guess I've always been a problem. I want to crawl under the woodwork somewhere, but I can't seem to find a crack. Woe is me. And that's me adding that in. Well, come on now. I mean. Come on, homie. You know between right and wrong. He knows. He knows. Don't be all woe is me. Don't be an asshole. That's right. On November the 15th, a Gainesville grand jury indicted Danny on five counts of first-degree murder and three counts of sexual battery and three counts of armed burglary. No desecration of a corpse or no, anything? Oh, no. man. Necrophilia? No nothing, huh? No, just that. Which, wow. I mean, that's enough. Yeah, I mean, it is, but that bothers me a lot. I know. <clears throat> so that was in November the 15th of 1991 so you know they're busy trying to get a trial together so in the meantime in march of 1992 he actually had to go to tallahassee for federal court Mm -hmm. for the robbery of the first union bank that he did right after he murdered krista right he was convicted for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon and bank robbery he was sentenced to life in prison Okay, so... At this point, you ain't getting out, homie. Well, hell no, he's not getting out. I mean, did they make reference... Did you see that they made reference to any other sentencing while they were sentencing him for this one? Did they make reference to the other one? And is is it consecutive or is it concurrent or... It didn't say, say. but I guess at this time it really don't matter because, I mean, it can't be consecutive because he got... Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I guess... If it's, well, I guess it would be concurrent then. Yeah. Because if they didn't make reference to it and say, well, you're already doing time for this. So when you're done with your time there, you got to start this time here. You see what I'm saying? When you're you're done with your life sentence and you die there, come back to life. You got to die again. You got to do another life sentence. Do it again. Die and then come back to life. You're going to be old as shit. When it's time for you to get out. Right. In June of 1992, Florida State Prison inmate Robert Bobby Lewis. We're going to call him Bobby. Oh, man. I thought you were saying that his last name was Bobby like Ricky Bobby. No. Oh, man. He was a former death row inmate now serving a life sentence. Wrote a letter to a lady by the name of Sandra London. Okay. She was a pen pal and confidant of several inmates. So Lewis tells her... So she was a pen pal whore. She was a prison hoe. Okay. I don't like her. So I don't have a high opinion of her. So oh, I, I, will not, I, know, I know where this goes. And right. So I, I'm agreeing with I will you. not be nice about her. Okay, got it. Bobby told her that he had formed a friendship with Danny while they were working in the prison together. And he was going to take advantage of this. She had actually... She was a true crime uh, writer. And she had co-authored a book of fiction in 1997 with serial killer Gerard Schaefer, who was actually a boyfriend of hers while they were in high school. Okay. So Bobby is actually, to Sandra, he's 
talking Danny up like, hey, you, you really need to write him and start talking to him. And at the same time, he's going to Danny and being like, hey, you should write her. I think you're like talking to her, blah, 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 blah. And so it ended up working. So Danny actually wrote the first letter to her. And he was offering her the chance to have exclusive access to his story. They ended up developing a close personal professional relationship at first, but it, it, um, what's the word? Escalated. It escalated. How does one escalate a relationship as a pen pal? I really don't know because up until this point, all they were doing was sending letters. Right, she right. hadn't been able to like see him. Right. That's what I'm saying. I don't so know. how does that, uh, how does that escalate? Maybe he, you, sh she gets a letter and she's like, oh, your words. Do me like this. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my. Who did you just become? <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I didn't know that was. <laughs> yeah. I actually thought that was going to sound sillier than it was. <laughs> no, that sounded sultry as fuck. All right. So now, let me let me just. OK, I'm trying. <laughs> Yeah, I need to get that out of my head. No, I mean, I guess my question is this, okay? You you kind of, with your sultriness, um, you kind of hit the nail right on the head is my question of yeah. how does one read a letter? And because you know just as well as I do in our day and age mm -hmm. with the, we send emails a lot, mm -hmm. okay? Not to each other, but you can't, judge emotion right from an email even even and text messages because we've said messages, this yes many a times before that's right and even me and you without putting a bunch out there i mean sometimes we send text messages to each other and we misread sure because we take it the wrong way yeah misunderstand right the emotion behind it right and so we may take it wrong and so, judging from texts or emails, emotion is, I, I just don't see how a relationship can escalate I don't from know. a pen pal. I don't know. I mean, I don't get it. Because one of them had to have wrote something. Oh, I'm sure. In, in one of their letters that became provocative. Oh, I'm sure. To, for it to escalate. Mm -hmm. I, it, there's only one way in my mind that it can happen. Right. And and it's like, okay, now, I'm assuming that that came from Danny. Because he's in prison and he's like, you know, now, hear me out. Okay. Bobby. The mm -hmm. guy, uh, Robert, Robert, Bobby? Bobby. Uh, Bobby. I'm wondering if this chick had formed all of these pen pal relationships by providing these inmates with photos. Oh, she was sending them nudie pictures. Maybe. Maybe so. And and that's how she gained their trust uh -huh. to talk to her. Mm -hmm. And and Bobby went to Danny and was like, "Hey, Look, I know, you know, she's not exclusive to me. She's got other guys that she writes to, but she'll send you, you know, you'll get mail. 
Right. And and she'll send you, you know, you get in good with her, she'll send you some photos and blah, blah, blah. Maybe that was initiated by Danny, mm-hmm. said, hey, um, can you send me some of them nudies? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, right. uh, you know, I need, I need a little help here working something out. Right. You know? And, and then maybe she saw his picture on, because it's my understanding, I think, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a girl here. I'm not a woman. Was he a good looking dude? I mean, obviously I'm not going to sit here in front of you and be like, oh my God, he was, he wasn't to me. He wasn't like this fine guy. I mean, he was attractive. Okay. Like if you'd have seen, not you, but like. If a female had seen him on the street, they would probably be like, oh, that's an attractive man right okay, there. Okay, so that's where I'm getting at. Right. She probably saw his photo many times because she was probably doing some research for a story or something. Mm-hmm. And probably through just looking at his photo, he's an attractive guy. Yeah. And then his words, which he was probably trying to sound a little mysterious through his words and things like this and so that coupled with her seeing him on the news and this that and the other she probably developed some feelings i guess maybe i'm only trying to piece it together that i don't understand the whole pen pal thing i never really wrote letters to anyone ever ever Mm -hmm. before so i don't i don't see how that can happen that way but it did. It did. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, you're you're giving this the true crime, and so it's uh-huh. like, okay, that happened. How? You know, and I'm just trying to piece it together. So, okay. Anyway. On June the 25th, Sandra received a second letter from Bobby, giving her information that Danny had shared with him. Now Bobby is proposing that him and Sandra write a book about Danny, and they split the proceeds 50-50. So they're just going to... Like, just, in Bobby's mind, they're just going to push Danny out the way completely. He's like, I'm going to tell you what he's telling me. You can write a book, and then me and you can split the money. Okay. Which, I don't know how that would benefit Bobby because he's in prison for life. So, I don't know. Commissary money? Oh, I didn't think about that. I guess. I'm only guessing. Yeah. I I mean, you know. He can get the good snacks. he, (laughs) He can get them Twinkies. That's right. Yeah. Danny and Sandra continued to exchange letters, and like I said, their relationship started to grow, and Danny kept assuring her that he would give her the real story about his life and crimes. Okay, dude. So, Bobby met with prison officials on July the 2nd, because he's starting to tell them, hey, Danny's been telling me this, and Danny's been telling me that. So, he's trying to give them information that he can use to his advantage. Maybe, like, more jail perks or, you know, different things right. inside jail. Like a TV in a cell. <laughs> right. <laughs> About, like, like Henry Lee Lucas. But yeah. 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 Some uh, cheeseburgers and shit. Yeah. Yeah. And a nun to, like, cut his meat up for him. That's right. There you go. Yeah. About 10 days after that meeting, Bobby met with a Florida Department of of law enforcement agent so on january 17th of 1993 we'd have made it to 1993 bobby informed prison officials that danny was wanting to talk talk about what the gainesville murders danny would be willing to discuss the gainesville murders in detail but he would only do it through bobby 
he would be using Bobby as his mouthpiece. <laughs> but before he did this, Danny had conditions that he wanted met in exchange for him providing the info. One of the conditions was that Sandra be allowed to visit him because she still has not visited him. They're still just writing them nasty-ass letters. Do you think she, like, sprayed perfume on them? Oh, I'm sure she oh, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, with the old-timey, the squeeze bottle, the bowl. Oh, which... my God. <laughs> <laughs> I bet she did. And then probably, I, I don't know. Yeah. My <laughs> God. Have you seen her? No. Like, have you seen? Oh. No. Oh, she is not. Uh-uh. All right, I'm going to look her up. Okay. So, Danny signed a waiver of his rights on January 31st, and he appended it with a handwritten withdrawal of his previous invocation of counsel, meaning that he was going to talk with them without, you know, his lawyer. That night, he met with detectives and confirmed his willingness to discuss the murders, but he reasserted that he would only do so through Bobby. So, the way this worked is the detectives would ask Bobby a question, Bobby would provide an answer, and then the detectives would ask Danny if what Bobby had just said was accurate. And if it was, Danny would confirm it, and sometimes he would kind of elaborate a little bit more on the answer. Yeah. But anyways, by the time this fiasco was done, he had confessed to, to all five of the Gainesville murders. Okay. But all this is being done through Bobby. Right. Like... So, like, a cop, like me and you are in here, and yeah. a cop says... Okay, so tell me about this, and I'll be like, "Well, Paul said, blah 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 blah." But you're sitting right there, and then the cop will look at you, Paul. Did you say? And you'll be like, "Yes, I said that." That is asinine. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's ballsy. Like, okay, I just looked at her picture. Yeah. She's nasty. (laughs) (laughs) Danny said that after killing his final victim, Tracy. He disposed of the knife and gloves used for the crimes because he decided that he was going to quit killing. I saw the light. I saw the light. Yeah. (laughs) So before going back to his camp, he cleaned himself off in a pool at a nearby apartment complex. See, that's another douche move. Yeah. He just jumps in the pool, lets all the blood get in the water. Where kids are going to be like swimming and shit. Nasty. So, he tells them that he felt compelled to commit the crimes by an uncontrollable force that took over his body and mind. Okay. So. You're you're free to go then. Is that that thing gone now? Okay, you're free to go. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I've, like, seen news articles and I've seen a documentary. And what I'm fixing to lead into, a lot of people place a lot of emphasis on this part. I'm not. I'm only introducing it because, yeah, it does play into his court case, but I'm calling bullshit. Okay. Okay. Hit me. Okay. Danny said that there are different personalities that are the driving force behind what he does. There's Danny. I guess that's just, you know, him. There's a Jesse James side of Danny. There is another force known as Enad. And then there's the force known as Gemini. When was he born? May the 26th of 1954. Um, so he's a Gemini. He's a Gemini. So he just pulled that shit right out of his ass. Right out of his butthole. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not buying that at no. all. And like, 
<clears throat> excuse me, when you look this up and you see anything about him, you always see him and Gemini. And I'm just like, no. yeah, no. No. Okay. He said Gemini was the one who was at the five murder scenes, basically saying it was Gemini that committed the murders. Okay. And is Gemini with us right now? <laughs> if he is, let us go get the priest. Yeah. Danny told detectives that there really is demons and forces in this world that can overpower even the strongest of us. I know because I've seen them and I know it's real. Just as sure as there's angels in heaven, there's devils in hell, which I believe. Obviously, I believe in angels and I do believe in devils. Do I believe that this fool was possessed by a demon named Gemini? No, I don't. And I'll lead into why here in a little bit. I'll point out why I don't believe he was. I think Danny Rawling was possessed by Danny Rawling. Yes. On February the 4th, Danny met with the task force detectives again, and he proceeds to keep talking about his different personalities. And he tells them he's dealt with it all of his life. But they became really prevalent when he was in solitary confinement in Parchman Prison. Remember the one where yep. he had the sewer yep. water coming up? And I and and you know here's here's the thing. When you're in a situation like that, and to be clear, I've never been in a situation like that. But when you're deer hunting, you're mm -hmm. by yourself. You're alone. There's nothing to do. This is I'm talking about way before phones, smartphones, and things mm -hmm. like that. You know, you may have thoughts of talking to yourself or something mm -hmm. like that or whatever. But don't answer yourself. <laughs> that's true because i was going to say i'll talk to myself like if i do something i'll be right. like well you dumbass but right, i won't right. be like oh, yeah. don't you talk to yourself like exactly. that exactly that's what i'm saying <laughs> that's what i'm saying right okay so he tells them that he keep it's a struggle to keep from becoming gemini he's constantly struggling so since he met with detectives and had the whole bobby mouthpiece fiasco he was actually awarded a visit with sandra so she drove to the prison, and they met in person for the first they time. They awarded him for that sh Rewarded him for that mm -hmm. shit? Because remember, that was one of his... Uh, Conditions. I, yeah. I get it. Mm -hmm. But that was asinine, like we talked about. Right. You know, and they bought that shit mm -hmm. and gave him what he wanted? And my thing is, is you're sitting here and you're, you know, you're kind of bartering on, I'll give you this if you give me this. So you're basically saying, yeah, I want this here prison whore to come visit me. That's what you wanted. I mean, you can be like, Hey, I just want the steak meal or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Something you can actually benefit from. Yeah. No, he wanted her. So whatever. They talked for nearly two hours. She ugly. <laughs> While they were talking, there was actually a prison guard that was sitting behind Danny taking notes of what they were talking about. And she tells Danny it's been really hard trying to get in here to see you. And he told her, well, that's over now because we're cooperating. And she was just kind of like, we're, but she never really said anything about that. And she asked Danny, she's like, does your lawyer know about this? And he's like, oh, I don't care what he thinks. You know, if he makes a, if he makes a fuss about it, I'll just fire him. And, yeah, because um, I've got this chick now <laughs> who's a pen pal whore. Yeah. I would hate, I bet you her finger is wore out. Ugh. So he goes on to say, oh, yeah, you that see could what go I'm saying. Uh, You see what I'm saying? That could go you a couple ways. You caught what I was, that's where I was going. 
You caught it. So, anyways, he 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 reiterates we are cooperating with the state, and I want you to know that I'm doing this so that we can be together. Like, homie, you are not getting out of jail, so I don't know how you planning on being together with her. I mean, yeah. you you literally have to die and come back to do another life sentence. So. Pal, whore, I wouldn't touch that finger with a ten foot pole. Ugh. So, anyways. <laughs> Danny ended up giving her his blessing to start releasing statements to the media, as well as any songs, art, or any other items that he had given her. So now she's kind of like his press agent, I guess. So this fool. Is she getting paid? No. Nah, what the fuck he's going to pay her with? I don't know. Mm-hmm. So this fool, she actually sent an announcement to various media outlets in the form of a press release. Okay. So, I'm trying to get my professional voice. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Take us there. Set the scene. I'm setting the scene. Excuse me. On Friday. (laughs) Oh, shit. Do I need to look away? I'm going to start laughing. You you looked me dead in the eye and started laughing. So, do I need to to look away? I'll just turn. Oh, my goodness. On Friday. (laughs) I can't even do it now. Oh, man, I got this crick in my neck. I can't turn that way. Okay. All right. I'll turn this way. On Friday. Oh, I guess I shouldn't have let it out with that smack. Sorry. Don't don't let it out with a smack. On Friday, February the 5th, I had an exclusive personal interview with accused serial killer Danny Harold Rawling, the mysterious singing drifter who was awaiting trial on five murder and three rape charges in the 1990 mutilation slayings of five college students in Gainesville, Florida. Rawling, 38, requested this interview in order to announce his intention to talk with the state's investigators about his case under the sole condition that he be allowed the privilege of having me visit him as his personal friend and confidant for the duration of his ordeal. By exclusive agreement and upon his request, all of Rawlings' forthcoming statements will be released by me personally. Extensive background material on Danny Rawling has been copyrighted and is now available for publication, including exclusive original stories, photos, artwork, and songs. I was trying to do that like a disclaimer at the end of like a, sure. a medicine commercial. Sure. May cause yeah. anal seepage. Oh, black yeah. eyes. He would. Not breathing. He, yeah, not breathing. <laughs> May cause death. May cause lack of breathing. Finger calluses. And irritation in your genital area. <laughs> <laughs> so the Department of Correction officials were not amused by this stuff. Oh, I bet they weren't. So they sent that bitch a letter and said, We uh, need to shut this shit down. We shutting it down. You can't no longer visit Danny. That's right. So, Sandra and Danny send letters, and they both had the bright idea of, we're going to get married. So, now they're engaged. And it instantly attracted media attention. They actually appeared on the TV show, A Current Affair. So, how did that happen? I'm sure, like, she was probably, she was probably there in studio, and he was probably satellited in from prison. So, they weren't, like, there together. Probably by phone. Maybe. Maybe. So they were on the show professing their love for each other, and he sang a gospel song. So he was, okay, so they're on this show, and then all of a sudden they pull back the the curtains behind them, and Mm -hmm. it's really the Jerry Springer show. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And the crowd goes wild. Jerry, Jerry. Jerry. (laughs) 
So jury selection in Danny's murder trial began on February the 15th of 1994. We are already, it's been over three years since the murders. Danny actually surprised everyone that morning by telling Judge Stan Morris that he wished to enter a plea of guilty for all of the charges. So no trial. No trial. We're going to go straight to penalty. Okay. So Judge Morris accepted that plea and scheduled the jury selection for the penalty phase to begin the next morning. That judge, when that when Danny said, I want to plead guilty, that judge was said, oh, thank God. Right? <laughs> he was like, heck yeah. There would have just been another criminal to fill his time. So. Oh, yeah. The penalty phase began in early March. State Attorney Rod Smith said that Danny was a career criminal a cold-blooded killer, and a rapist that deserved to die. So he was calling for the death penalty. I agree. Danny's attorney, which was public defender Rick Parker, claimed that Danny was mentally ill. He stated that Danny's mental illness will be described during the sentencing phase, and this evidence will be helpful in understanding how that same person can rape and murder and then later regret these acts and feel compassion for the living loved one surviving his violence. Nope. Nope. Bullshit. Bullshit. Nope. So clinical psychologist Harry Crop, he was actually a witness for the defense, had become involved with Danny when he was called to assess whether Danny could enter into a guilty plea for the Ocala Winn-Dixie robbery. Okay. So he drove to the Marion County Jail where Danny was. He was introduced to him. They discussed the robbery for nearly four hours, and by the time Crop had finished with their discussion, he's like, yeah, he can he can stand trial. He can plead guilty, you know. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. So Crop is starting to pack up his things, and Danny asked him, can we talk about other crimes other than this robbery? And Crop is like, uh, sure. So for the next three hours, Danny tells Crop about the Gainesville murders. After this is done, Crop is kind of struggling on what to do because the information is obviously privileged information. But he's really like, oh, you know, gosh, I wish I could tell the police this, but I can't because it's doctor-patient relationship. So he was ethically where he couldn't. But he was already in jail and had pled guilty. So would it really? It was still confidentiality privilege that the doctor couldn't break. Hmm. Okay. Could you imagine? Yeah, I mean... I would be like... But wait a minute. Shut your damn mouth, don't tell me nothing. Uh, I mean, what was he telling? Uh, I guess I guess he didn't tell anybody what he told him. Right. So, we don't know what he told him. So, he just pled guilty. He didn't really have to have to uh, go through evidence, right? In the tri- And there, was, there wasn't a trial. I mean, there was a trial for sentencing, but that was it. Right. The only thing that they're trying to do right now with this uh, sentencing part is the, obviously the state attorney is like, no, he needs death. Yeah. But his defense attorney is right. trying to be like, he don't need death. Y'all just need to sentence him to a life sentence. So he's trying to bring people in for him to right. be like, well, you know. But they're not talking about the details of each one of the murders. They're not talking about the psychology behind why he did what he did. Or are they? Kind of. Okay. Kind of kind of about why he is the way he is. Why he is the way he is. But right. not the detail of the actual murder. Right. Yeah. Okay. Since they skipped over the. Uh, so that's probably what he told this guy. 
right. is the details behind the murders. The murders. Right. That mm-hmm. would be an interesting book to read. Right. So Crop also testified that he had actually met with James Rawling, Danny's father, mm-hmm. also before he met with Danny. Crop traveled to Shreveport, sat down, and he said that James had a very strong need to control the structure of the interview to talk about what he wanted to talk about and not talk about other things at all. I'm assuming this guy's sitting across from James and James is trying to control this. And, yes. and I can just see the guy kind of sit back and take his notepad and say, hmm, mm. interesting, mm-hmm. and just start writing, you know? Right. And he'd be like, that's interesting that you say that, okay, mm-hmm. and just start writing. I, I see, see why your son is the way exactly. he is. Exactly. James blamed Danny's problems on his wife's side of the family. Sure he did. He did. Sure he did. Crop said that his failure to acknowledge that any abuse occurred in the home reflects the kind of person that Danny described his father as. Particularly since James had to know that with him denying what went on in the home, that was increasing Danny's likelihood of getting the death penalty. Ah. Because obviously... His dad's like, no, this stuff didn't happen. He wasn't abused, so therefore people don't feel sorry for Danny. Yeah. And and are like, oh, I see why this happened. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And he may think, you know, well, I don't want anybody to know actually what happened. And and his pride is mm-hmm. what's going to get his kid the chair. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking about it, and I'll tell you why in a minute because I'm fixing to read something else. But I'm thinking... Uh, this fool probably also doesn't see that he did anything wrong. Hell no. He was he justified in everything that he did. That's right. Just like what he did to, to Danny's mom. Right. For years. He was justified in yeah. his mind. He didn't mm-hmm. He didn't think he did anything wrong. That's just the way it was supposed to be. Right. His way or no way. Right. Crop also said that instead of accepting any responsibility for the way Danny turned out, that his father placed all of the blame on Danny himself. His father said that Danny always lived in a Disney world. (laughs) He's always been a dreamer. He never thinks of the future. He just lives day to day. Yeah, Disney world, I don't think so. And he said, I've always felt that Danny had mental problems, but I can't understand it. He had it made. So he just didn't take advantage of what I gave him. What did you give him? Exactly. If you felt he had mental problems, why didn't you get him help? What did you give him other than the anger behind what he has done? Well, I'm going to tell you what he gave him because he actually sent Crop a letter after this interview. He had a list of things that he'd done to that he claimed that he did to support Danny when he was growing up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, then. His letter said that neither Danny or his brother Kevin had to work outside of the home growing up. Why? Their father, who taught them to swim? Their father, who brought them the best musical instruments? Their father, never been a Christmas they didn't receive something. Who fed housed Danny at no cost to Danny? His father. He then says, his father believes the man of the family is the head of the family. No matter what anybody says, he won't change. Did anybody ever stop long enough to say thanks to that man? Okay, hold on. So they never had to work. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, you know, 
that's not teaching them responsibility. Right. Okay. They were bought things and stuff mm-hmm. like this, you know, stuff like this. So you spoiled them. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then. But I don't really, I don't really think he did. Okay. So he didn't spoil them. Okay. But. Because they weren't even allowed to sit on the couch. Well, I'm, I, I was getting there. So that's the thing is, and then you always make sure they had things for Christmas. That's what, what you're supposed to do. Right. Okay. But, but don't sit here and think that you buying them things and nobody else buying them things is something special. Because you wouldn't let his mom work. You wouldn't let them work. Right. So they couldn't buy themselves things. Their mom couldn't buy me anything because she didn't have no money. You controlled everything. So don't sit here and act like you're some kind of a saint, dickhead. Right. I just, ugh. okay, sorry. Okay. So after all of that, Dr. Crop's opinion was that James Rawlings' treatment of his son and the overall dysfunction, dysfunctional family environment significantly increased the probability that Danny would become a dysfunctional adult. Yeah, we see that. Dr. Krupp ultimately diagnosed Danny as suffering from borderline personality disorder. Not multiple personality Mm -hmm. disorder. Yeah, not multiple. Right. Betty McMahon, who was a Gainesville psychologist, she was also for the defense, testified that Danny suffered from a myriad of mental disorders, including a possession disorder. That's a disorder? Apparently. I did not know that. I didn't either. She had said that Danny had told his mother about being possessed years before and only started calling the entity Gemini during psychological interviews in 1993. Hmm. She said that Danny's mental disorders were rooted in the abuse and neglect he received from his father. I can see that. Yep. He also told her that he wanted revenge for all of the misjustice that had been dumped on him all of his life. And she also said that he told her that he wanted to be the superstar of rapist. Okay, dude. Now, you're, first of all, you're there testifying to help him. That last remark did not help him at all. No, (laughs) no. You wanted to get inducted into the Hall of Fame of rape? No, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Um, guilty uh death yeah yeah so the state state's attorney rod smith called bullshit on this except for that last part yeah except for the last part specifically on the gemini part oh yeah because he said that danny had told psychologists that he had seen the movie the exorcist three at a theater that was across the street from the campsite where he was staying in the woods okay so Smith was went and rented the video to see what it was all about. And in the movie, the killer's name is Gemini. The killer possesses a prison inmate who later goes on a killing spree and at one point actually beheads and disembowels a nurse in the movie. I think The Exorcist 3 was Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie. And he played it on loop Ugh. as he brought people in it was being played on loop all the time just constantly wow the movie exorcist 3 bringing all kind of criminals together i've never seen it before i haven't either either. i've never seen the exorcist 3 um i may have to we may have to watch that we might be see what it's about yeah because apparently it's it's something to I, i don't know i have to we'll have to watch that Okay, while all this is going on in Shreveport, 
Danny's parents, they did not travel for the penalty phase. For, oh, for, sure. for one thing, because his dad's a douchebag. But his mother, Claudia, actually has terminal liver cancer, so she can't travel. Oh, that's horrible. So they're watching it on TV, and one day his father just explodes and orders Claudia out of the house. Like? Get out my house. Like, move out? Like, get out my house, I'm going to kill everybody. And, the, and she has terminal cancer. She has terminal cancer. And this was reported to the newspapers. I found this in the newspaper. Thank you, newspapers.com. And anonymous. There's your ad. <laughs> right. An anonymous family friend actually reported this to the newspapers and said that that's the way he was acting. I guess the family friend was there. So Claudia planned to stay with her sister. Okay. Good. Get out of that. So Bobby. Lewis actually gets up there and he testifies for the prosecution. He said that Danny told him that he stabbed and mutilated his victims because he wanted to spread terror throughout the community. He wanted to make himself famous and he wanted to be a superstar among criminals. <laughs> Do you remember the movie um, Superstar? It came out like oh, yeah. probably 98. That's, that's, oh my God. You know, she was like, superstar. Oh, yeah. That just made me think of that. Superstar. I can see him doing that on, on the stand. Superstar. And then with the spirit fingers. You know, you she know? was like, when I get nervous, yeah, yeah. I took my hands and then I go. Yep, yep. <laughs> Smells her hands. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that. That's fitting for him. Yeah. Yep. That's fitting for him. Psychologist Daniel Spreehy, he was actually for the prosecution, said that during his examination of Danny, he found him to be a really bright person. And he estimated his IQ to be in the lower end of the bright average range, starting from 110. His diagnosis of Danny focused on antisocial personality disorder because Danny was cool and in control and not acting in an angry manner during his murder spree. Which also en true. entailed a lot of planning. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which, again... But then he, he stayed there. He, he stayed there. He was so there. calm after he'd done murdered mm -hmm. these people. He was able to calmly stay there. That, and he watched some of them. He watched. He stood over some of them that were sleeping, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. watched them, and then stabbed that one girl in the back and watched her die. So, yet again, I'm saying he was not possessed no, i'm sorry there was, was no not. gemini no miss no. me with that bullshit i know okay Spreehy rejected the notion that gemini or some demonic spirit took possession of danny and compelled him to commit the crimes he believed that danny made the spirits up afterward in an attempt to distance himself from what he had done probably Rather than being caused by demonic possession, Danny's crimes could be traced back to his childhood. Of course. A personality disorder develops over many years. Dr. Spreehy pointed to Danny's insistence that Bobby Lewis be the mouthpiece for his confession to the Gainesville slayings as an example of Danny's need to be in control. His need to be in control, which was the same need that served at... at <laughs> You interrupted me in the middle of my sentence. My bad. <laughs> so the need to be in control was the same need that served as a contributing motivation for the rapes and the murders, to be in control of them people. Okay. He was sentenced to death. Just like that? Yeah. Okay. 
So was there a jury? Yes. In this? Okay, so the jury sentenced him to death and then Judge Morris actually upheld what the jury recommended that he be okay. sentenced to death. Okay. I didn't go into all that because it did not take them long to come back and be oh, like Oh, I'm sure it didn't. Be like he got to die. Yeah. This yeah, they they probably were in the the deliberation room and, and you know, the first thing that the foreman the jury foreman probably asked was, Do we believe that he has multiple personalities and everybody was probably like, no. Right. And they were like, okay, he's going to die. Right. Yeah. He quickly adapted to life on death row. He began each day at 5 a.m. with breakfast inside a six by nine foot solitary cell. Once a week, he was allowed to spend four hours with other death row inmates in the exercise area. But he spent most of his time reading. His usual materials consisted of the Gainesville Sun newspaper, Popular Mechanics, and Hustler. Hustler. So, he was let out once a week? Four hours a week? Is that what you said? Four after a week? Once, once a week for four hours. With other prisoners. Death, death row mm-hmm. inmates. Mm-hmm. For exercise. For exercise. Inmates on death row. For exercise. For exercise. Yep. Why would you feel the need to exercise if you're going to be executed? I I don't know. (laughs) I mean, because I I mean, the whole need for exercise is to stay healthy and live longer. Exactly. I would just be like, um, oh, okay. So my appeal was denied, and I'm I'm going to be dead now. Okay. I just let myself go. Maybe it was kind of like a cruel thing. Like, hey, y'all go exercise to you know. Live longer, but we're going to kill you anyway. No, not me. I would uh, I would eat everything, lay around, and just get fat as hell. And then when it came time to take me, I would just go limp. <laughs> I would. They would have to dr- pick me up and drag me. I'd be like, you're going to work for this execution, bitches. Oh, my God. <laughs> I could just see them trying to drag somebody. Hell, yeah. Oh. I ain't walking. You're going you're gonna to work for this. Wow. So after he's sentenced to death in Tree, we're back in Treeport now. His father James hit his mother. So apparently she moved back in as she talked. I know. As she talked on the phone to the family minister about Danny, she did leave that day and she did file for divorce. Good. Yeah. Why did he hit her? Because she was talking on the phone to their family minister about Danny, and it pissed him off, and he hit her. I bet you he looked at this as an embarrassment. Oh, I'm sure he did. I mean, like, don't be, don't be embarrassing this family, right? Talking about, you know, my bitch, son. you embarrassed the family. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, this dude was the embarrassment. Yeah, I mean, here's the second time your ass has done. Ended up in a damn newspaper because I found this newspapers.com. Oh, it, oh, you found the article? Yeah, oh, this was shit. on newspapers.com. And it's like, you're embarrassed because of everything that splashed in the papers because of him. But yet, you've just made the newspaper twice for abusing your terminally ill wife. Yeah. Douche. Valiant. Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, you're you're a fucking stand-up dude. Mm-hmm. Whatever, dude. 
So while all this, I keep saying while all this is going on, because obviously there's a lot going on. On the other side of the country, unemployed actor and inspiring screenwriter Kevin Williamson was house sitting in Los Angeles. He was channel surfing and he came across a TV special about the Gainesville student murders. Okay. He was fascinated by it, which I mean, I can obviously we're fascinated by true crime. Hello, podcast. Sure. After watching the the TV special, he began imagining a knife-wielding murderer watching him from outside the house. And so he ended up writing a screenplay about it, and he sold the script for Scream to oh, the Weinstein, Weinstein Brothers production company for $400,000. And the resulting film went on to gross nearly $175 million worldwide. And also spawned successful series of sequels. Wow. And I was looking into this, and not only did he do that, but he was involved with Dawson's Creek, The Vampire Diaries, which okay. we've seen. Yeah. Um, really good. Yep. Um, and he did write a couple of the other screen movies. I don't remember which ones. Um, so, yeah. I mean, he's actually done a lot. Yeah. I mean, they just came out with the, with the latest one. You know, which we've seen, we've seen, yep, and we're not going to give any spoiler right. alerts. But if anybody has seen it and wants to share your opinion on it, because there is one scene in it that I do not agree with, okay, um, you can feel free to email us at cdisturbedpodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on our Facebook <laughs> at criminally disturbed, right, or our Instagram at criminally disturbed podcast. Because I'm betting other people that have seen it do, are the same way. Probably. Don't agree with this certain scene. I don't. Okay, go ahead. Yep. Okay. I was fixing to get into that movie, but I'm not going to. Yeah, don't get no spoilers. Yeah. On September 22nd of 2006, Florida Damn. Governor Jeb Bush signed a death warrant for Danny. About damn time. His execution date was scheduled for October the 25th. So we're at October 25th at 8 a.m. that morning. Danny's brother, Kevin, came and met with them. They said their farewells. After the three-hour goodbye, Danny had his final meal of lobster tail, butterfly shrimp, baked potato, strawberry cheesecake, and sweet tea. And he ate every bite. I imagine. Following his last meal, he took a shower, returned to his cell, Reverend Mike Hudspeth, which was Danny's designated spiritual advisor and was also the pastor of the United Pentecostal Church of Shreveport, was the next to visit with them. They talked for several hours through the bars of Danny's cell. At 5.30 p.m., the families of Danny's victims were escorted into the execution chamber's viewing room. Viewing? <laughs> viewing room along with official witnesses and members of the media. After strapping Danny to a gurney, the execution team members wheeled him into the execution chamber. Behind a large window covered with a brown curtain, they made the final adjustments to the eight lethal injection syringes. The curtain rose at 559. There was four prison guards in there with him. One was behind his head. One was by his side and two were at his feet. And there was a microphone that was hanging down. And they asked do you have a final statement? And he said, yes, I do. And then he began singing the same hymn that he had sung 30 years earlier at his baptism. Damn. Shut up, dude. When the clock hit 6.03, the lethal cocktail of drugs began to flow into his veins through an IV. Did he start crying? No. Damn. 
The drugs knocked him unconscious and paralyzed him before stopping his heart. A voice on the speaker declared Danny Harold Rawling dead at 6.13 p.m. Then the brown curtains silently closed. So after 4,571 days, his time on death row had ended. Mm. So the Reverend Hudspeth comes back to Shreveport and he revealed that shortly before Danny's execution, Danny had slipped him a letter confessing to the three Grissom murders because those were still unsolved. Right. He insisted that Danny appeared very humble and regretful when he'd given him the written confession. Mm-hmm. Hudspeth also disclosed that Danny had told him over a decade earlier that he killed the Grissoms, but pastor confidentiality rules required that he keep the confession to himself. Now, I'll look this up. There is actually something called a clergy penitent privilege. And I looked up the law for Louisiana because each state has different laws. Okay. So I assumed since the Grissom murders happened here in Louisiana and the pastor was here in Louisiana, that the Louisiana law would yeah. be the one. Louisiana law protects confidential communications to a clergyman in his professional character as a spiritual advisor. Okay. Clergy are mandatory reporters unless the clergy in the course of the discipline or practice of that church, denomination, or organization is authorized or accustomed to hearing confidential communications and under the discipline or tenets of the church, denomination, or organization has a duty to keep such communications confidential. In that instance, he shall encourage that person to report the allegations to the appropriate authorities. Now, in 2014, it was amended. It was added uh-huh. that the privilege may be abrogated if the clergy member has cause to believe that a child's physical or mental health or welfare is in danger as a result of abuse or neglect or that abuse or neglect was a contributing factor in a child's death. Just a child. Just a child. But if this would have been in effect in 1989, then... The Grissom child. The Grissom child. He would have had a duty to... but, But see, that's just children. I know. Okay, so the thing is, is even if he had murdered the parents, Mm -hmm. okay, and there was a chance that he would murder someone else, I still am on the side of, dude, I know you're a pastor. Mm -hmm. I understand. And I know he told you this in confidence, but you could have saved other lives. Right. And I'm still, that's a slippery slope with me. It is. It is. I mean, it is a slippery slope with me, too. Right. But he could have saved other lives. And that's true. But you can't hold that over. You can't put that on him. No, no, him. no. It's not on him. Right. It's, it's just, it's a rule that right. they follow. And these priests, pastors, and, and stuff... They have to have the respect and trust right. of the congregation, the exactly. community, and, and things, or or they don't have anything. Right. So I get it. I mean, I understand. But at the same time, could you imagine being this poor yeah. pastor? Uh, For no. 10 years, he had to yeah. know that. I, I cannot imagine. Yeah. And then seeing this go on right, and can't say anything. That's horrible. Yeah. That's horrible, too. Yeah. I believe I would be like, just like I said with the psychologist, I'd be like, don't tell me nothing. Yeah. I don't want to know. Yeah. 
if it started in that confession booth or however they did it, I'd be like, okay, you need to stop right there. Uh-huh. I don't want to know this. Sticking your fingers in your ears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Claudia Rawling died in 1995 from liver cancer. James Harold Rawling died on December 20th, 2012 at the age of 81. He lasted until 81. He lasted that long. Old. Yeah. What a peace. Peace. But I'm glad that she is no longer in the hell that she was in. Unfortunately, it was due to cancer. Right. But that that the fact that she lost the battle to cancer but won the battle of peace. Yeah. Away from that monster. Because she lived her whole life. I know. Her whole life. Yep. And I did also do some digging because I know I had mentioned before that I'd seen a newspaper article where she had actually filed for a separation. Yep. That was in 1957. Oh. Oh. No. Sad. But we did get scream out of it. We did get scream out of it. Unfortunately, the events that happened to lead up to scream is is horrible. For sure. Horrible. I hate it. But... At the same time... I like the movie. Good movie. It's a good movie. The first is the best. And I'm glad that they didn't like um, make him a focal point of the movie. Right, because... Yeah, because it's like... Yeah, he, he was used as inspiration, but it's really not about him. It's not. I mean, he, he's actually nowhere near... That's right. Nowhere in the movie. That's right, good. And he I'm don't glad. need to be. That's yeah. right. So, so. Mm-hmm. Well... That's it. Oh, my God. That is a story of the Gainesville Ripper. Oh, my God. There was a lot of things. Yeah, there's a lot of things that I knew, Mm -hmm. but there was also a lot of things that I didn't know about that. Um, And there was a, I already had a lot of info in this, so I cut some stuff out. But as far as going back to Sandra and Danny and them writing a book together, they Um, did write a book. mm. But the families ended up suing her because they're like, yeah, bitch, you're not going to make money off of these sure. debts and stuff. So any money that she, the last I saw, any money that she made actually went into a um, fund in Florida for, um, I forgot what it's called. So anyway, she didn't make any money off of it. Good. Yeah. That's really good. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was an awesome story. Oh, well, thank you. You did a good job telling it. It's unfortunate. I, I mean... I hate the way that he brutalized those victims. Yeah. I mean, it was horrible. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the most gruesome. Very gruesome. And it's not something I ever want to think about. But right. um Awesome story, though. Well, look, we've got some other ones that we we're working on. Uh, we're, like I said in a previous episode, you know, we, we definitely want to try to get two, at least two out a week. Mm-hmm. So... You guys uh, stay tuned, and uh, we will be putting those out uh, in the in the near future. That's right. I'm Paul. And I'm Jamie. And please join us next time. And remember to stay disturbed. Bye. Bye. Bye.